Hi, welcome to Starboard Vineyard Tours, a podcast about science fiction studies. I'm Mark. And I'm Ben. And uh, this month, we are discussing the second half of Darko Suvin's Metamorphoses of Science Fiction on the poetics and history of a literary genre. And uh, it's very straightforward. The first half was the poetics, and this half is the history. Yeah, yeah. This is actually... It's... It's the, it's the significantly longer half. It's almost like twice as long in terms of pages as the previous section. Is it? Oh, I guess there is that much front matter. Yeah, because I'm looking at my, like, book, and I was like, no, there's the there's this chunk, and then there's this chunk, and then there's, like, all the essays and stuff that my, like, 2016 edition has. And then I look at the front, and it's like there's five introductions or something like that. Yeah, I think this was a little more obvious to me because I have the... Um, internet archive copy which doesn't have all that front matter that Um, makes sense yeah it's a much annotated and much like uh introduced book because it's this you know old and uh influential piece yeah no that's true um well we kind of described who darko suvin is and what this book is uh on the previous episode so i don't feel like we should reiterate that really yeah no i i think you know He's an important theorist. He put forward uh, cognitive estrangement, and if you want to know more about that, the previous episode is all about that. Yeah. So, okay, let's get into his his science fiction history, which is, um, it's, it's not purely like a, his, it, it is a historical discussion of science fictional works. So it's, it's really what this is, is the section of the book where he, um, talks about specific works and what he thinks is, like, notable and worthwhile about them. Yeah, and and charts out an arc through history, in fact, from prehistory onwards, of science fiction. And this is, I think, the place where people have the most, um, I mean, the most counter-arguments to Suvin. His, His cognitive estrangement is very hard to argue against as a framework. You can you know, you can do various things against it, but for the most part, when someone wants to pick a fight with Suvin, in my experience, they're always picking a fight with the latter half, because it's kind of the softer target. Yeah, I hear that. Um, I mean, I feel like, though, and I think we maybe said something like this in the previous episode, the, the grand sweep of history that he talks about in this section, I think is almost implied or required by, um, by cognitive estrangement. Um, or, well, okay, I have, like, some thoughts about that, and whether you really have to go back this far in history if you're going to talk about cognitive estrangement, but certainly the way he constructs it. Yes. Methodologically, this whole section is about providing the basis for not just, I think, the definition, literature of cognitive estrangement, but specifically the idea that cognitive estrangement, as he formulates it, has been present in human thought forever. Like, literally forever. Yes, yes. Um, it's, it's not something that he really believes ever had to be historically invented. Um, yeah, and depending on how you understand cognitive that follows. Like, I think that the thing going on here is partially that Suvin wants to say that the cognition in cognitive estrangement is not just a sort of more recent scientific cognition, rational materialist cognition, or if it is, he wants to argue that rationalism, or at least materialism, has been present in human thought since the beginning, 
And he even argues that one of the reasons we don't have a lot of science fiction from, say, the pre-Roman era or whatever is that it was a uh, suppressed tradition in a certain sense, that it was a low or low culture or peasant tradition in various times rather than being a high culture tradition because, you know, obviously religious authorities or uh, philosophical movements that weren't materialist have tended to dominate historically. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I think this is the the point where I really like. I was, and and I mean, you kind of said like this is typical, so I guess I'm uncreative in this way. But I really did find myself a lot more frustrated with this part of the book, and I think that's because, but I don't think that's because of things that aren't present in the first half, and it's more like, um when he really goes into detail like this and talks about specific works and talks about the things they say and, like, kind of um, Western intellectual history as it, like, moves around or as science fiction moves around it, um, it becomes clear to me that his perspective on, like, the history of thought is really different from mine. And I'll be frank, I think a lot more simple and teleological. Um... So, yeah, no, I, I can see that. I, I guess I should be clear that when I say that, like, you know, I also have more problems with this second half than with the first. But I think that a lot of, for a lot of people, that's because that becomes a way of attacking the sort of core idea of cognitive estrangement, the novum, his framework for science fiction. And I really, I don't think that's warranted. I really like the first half. I like the, the methodology of analysis there. I just think that, as you say, his version of the history of thought, his version of the history of literature, I mean, it just feels like he's trying to bend it into fitting a category that you can, I think, reasonably say doesn't really arise until a certain kind of scientific materialism is widely present in popular culture. Like, I mean, frankly, I don't know that I believe in his peasant tradition of materialism as this sort of eternal force. I think materialism is, like, you know, as a good materialist, I think materialism is contingent. Yes, yes. Like, and that's the thing. I'm not actually sure how much he really believes in contingency, um, which I don't think has always... I, I think he believes in himself to be, like, a... You know, I, I think he's talking about these uh, historical moves as... Not necessarily like, oh yeah, it was ordained from the beginning that all of this would go this way, but... Um, but pretty dialectical. Yeah, and I don't think he really believes that, like... He's interested in individual specific publications, but he's not necessarily looking at it as like, well, if this thing hadn't been published, then this field wouldn't have gone this way. Which is, again, I'm not actually sure that that's a particular perspective that I subscribe to either, but... Um, but no, there's a very specific historical framework that he's using here, and he, he outright states it where he's like, I think that these are the examples of a submerged tradition that appear above the waterline, so to speak, that imply this larger uh, existing under, uh, you know, submerged tradition. These are the ones that got through into high culture, into surviving literate uh, culture, whereas there must have been a science fiction below the surface that was uh, sort of the, the real vibrant current that has existed forever. 
And I just think that that's a remarkably large claim. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to, to quote him when he basically says this. Yes. However, those works which did break through the surface of officially recorded and recordable higher culture almost by definition had to be significant, which like, that's, that's a big, big claim. He's basically saying that because something is canonical and remembered, therefore it must truly be artistically great. And like, I don't think that's true. Yeah, I think there's a complex interrelation there where like, I do think some of what makes things remembered is that a ton of copies got made of them, which can point to it having had a, you know, a splash effect, a very successful artistic work, can also point to it having been, you know, politically useful for someone to make a billion copies of it and stuff like that. Yeah, and he does acknowledge that, you know, um, when he says yeah. that, he says this thing in that, later in that same sentence, or, or uh, the sentence after that, that writers who succeeded in breaking through because of superior personal talent or cunning and luck in finding an interstitial political time and social space in which to go public are usually a combination of both factors. But he does really think that it's about, like, authors creating something almost trans-historical and then through being so good and or, like, finding the right time. But it's not... He doesn't think that the time creates the authors, you know? Yeah, I I do think that it's a sort of interesting combination because he does think that, like, these authors only exist because of a submerged tradition that they must be drawing on. So at the same time that he's like, well, I think these individuals were lucky or talented enough to become major figures in the larger literary tradition, he's also saying, I don't believe in their individual genius, I believe in them having channeled a larger social thing, you know, the genre, the, the, the science fictional subcurrent that they must be drawing on. It's in an interesting place, frankly, that's sort of, from my perspective, halfway between uh, the sort of um, classic genius model of, you know, here's just someone supremely talented, and a sort of purely historical model, these people come out of the visible genres of literature, to say that they are instead people who have managed to make visible an invisible genre. I, I don't think it's total bunk, but I don't think this is the method I would use for talking about them, especially when he's so interested in drawing out quite canonical authors for this. Um, you know, his example list right before that sentence you quoted is Plato, Lucian, Moore, Rabelais, Rabelais? I, I'm bad at French. Swift, Rabelais. Diderot, Verne. Rabelais, thank you. Yeah, and also, like, something that I think is so striking about this is that he just skips happily from Plato and Lucian, ancient authors, to yes. uh, writers of the Renaissance, with, first of all, nothing yep. in between. early modern. Yep. And, and, and also, like, uh, you know, he's happy to treat these things as basically continuous in the way that those early modern writers did. Yes. Um, and he just kind of swallows that whole. Um, should we... Yeah. Uh, We've, we're almost entirely talking about this from a broad perspective, which I don't think is bad, but do you want to maybe get into the details that he ta or the specific like books that he talks about? I mean, I think we can, but I, I think that the maybe the most interesting thing to put forward here is this sort of broad historical model, this approach, 
because I think that's a way of getting the most out of this kind of, you know, as you pointed out, it's not like a continuous history. It's a number of moments in time where, as uh, as Suvin would put it, the science fictional uh, broke the surface of culture and became visible. And so he's sort of it's ironic that the first subchapter of this section is called The Alternative Island, because he's already framed science fiction as, like, an archipelago of islands rather than a mountain range. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, he also has, like, really conveniently, by deciding that um, not only is all utopia science fiction, but almost that, like, utopia is a specific and kind of privileged subgenre of science fiction... Yeah. Um, this this allows him to take the history of utopian writing, which is which is pretty long, yeah. um, and and claim it all for SF. Yeah, and to be clear, while I'm not sure I would necessarily say, you know, I'm not sure that I would say SF is transhistorical, utopia is a subdivision of SF that occurs within historical time, uh, I am willing to believe that Utopia is a sort of uh, direct evolutionary ancestor of science fiction or and draws directly into it, which equally absorbs the history of the utopian literary form into uh, the history of science fiction. I actually think that that's not an illegitimate move on his part. I just think the way he's framing it is, I mean, it's weird. In fact, he says in that, that introduction uh, to this section... Um, no doubt this perverts somewhat what really happened in cultural and literary history, but no more so than any historical investigation dealing, as it must always, with a choice from whatever data have survived rather than how it really was. And you've skipped right over his, his love of... Because uh, I don't want to try and pronounce it. Yeah, German. no, he it's just... He, he, he's, he uses German and then for once translates it uh, for our, our benefit. I'm sure he's thinking about Hegel there. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm sure Suvin is thinking about Hegel. Seems like a, I don't know, I'm not going to say 50-50 shot in all cases, but it's decent. Yeah, yeah. Um, something that I feel like I should maybe mention right at the beginning, because I think it informs everything I've already said, is that I, just for fun or like personal interest, I've also been reading Foucault's The Order of Things recently, which, first of all, covers basically the same span of time as this book does, but in a, in a completely different way. Um, and in a way that certainly is, like, ambitious and has a lot of things I could pick apart, um, but that also, like, that I do find more convincing overall, um, in part because... Uh, you know, um, that book is, is more engaged in trying to convince you of its historical, like, framework and argumentation. Um, whereas I think almost, uh, for Suvin, he is interested in trying to convince you of his historical framework, but he's not, Foucault never stops doing that, if that makes sense. Um, whereas, uh, Suvin kind of establishes it and then moves on to actually do it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, you know... I which think is not a bad thing. It's just a different way of writing. Sure, sure, sure. I, I'm just saying, I think that Suvin's, uh, Suvin's approach here is 
effectively to try and convince you of the merit of these science fictional readings of these historical works. Mm -hmm. Because by doing so, he establishes that, you know, he has this sort of science fictional essence of cognitive estrangement, and he's establishing that something like it, or it itself, can be found throughout these works, and therefore this is a history of science fiction. And I'm, you know, I'm relatively convinced by the idea that these show elements of cognitive estrangement. I think that science fiction in particular has a very particular model of the cognitive, a model of how one thinks about these things and how one fits it into understanding, and that if you want to talk about cognitive estrangement in such a broad way as Suvin ends up doing in this, then possibly you need a different name than science fiction um, to unify these things and to admit that it's not really the thing that we started off talking about, which is science fiction, the literary genre that people, you know, just, the poetic section is much more particular, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, like, I I think, uh, yeah, and, and basically, it really comes down to that question of, like, what is cognitive, what is cognition, because that is what the order of things is about it is that is the book that like we've already used the word episteme and like talked yeah. about the idea that what is the the entire way of knowing um in in western culture we should also say that like this is really laser focused in that regard and he admits that but yeah i mean he, the way he describes it is simply this is focused on the works that he knows and the tradition he knows well. And the thing is, if you take his his wider cognitive estrangement that he frames, then it absolutely exists in other cultures. Like I, I and I don't oh, think yeah. he would claim otherwise. Um, it's just that it's become so broad as to not be very useful for talking about literature. Whereas if you if you drill down into science fiction's cognitive estrangements, then it has a much more first of all a much more recent and a much more definable history. Yeah, and I think this is, like, the big thing that has come into my mind by reading these two books at the same time is that I think you could make a, a version of Suvin's, of, of the Suvinian definition of science fiction, the Suvinian way of analyzing science fiction, that is more alive to, like, uh, to changes in episteme over time. Um, because, like, I can't help but notice that where Foucault locates the beginning of the modern... Um, is also where Frankenstein happens. Ooh, um, nice! And that—that that I just, appreciate that. Right, it just falls up, falls together in my head, and then like, um, yeah. So uh, th this is a that is it. It's something that I can't be the first person to notice, especially because like they were writing these books at the same time, and in fact, um. Very funnily to me, uh, at one point, like exactly once, I think, he does actually cite the order of things, but like very briefly in a way that doesn't really acknowledge most of what it's doing. Yeah, I um, mean, he has his own project. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true, but it's it's very funny to just take like a sliver of someone else's like huge project and be like, well, I'm just going to use this. Okay, but to be fair, that is also what we do with Suvin anytime we cite cognitive estrangement without citing this giant history of Lucian through Rabelais and more, etc. That's fair. That's fair. That's fair. Like, that's, I think that's just how intellectual history works. In the same way that, just to use an example that's been coming to mind recently, uh, So Young Chu's excellent uh, Do Metaphors Dream of uh, Literal Sleep um, 
has multiple major claims that it sort of unifies in its theory of science fiction, and she includes a few things there that I've almost never seen people cite when they cite her ideas because they've sort of taken the most mobile bit and applied it. And I don't think that's a bad thing, but it also means that when I go back and read the original, I'm always a bit surprised to be like, oh, right, and there's this whole other sphere of this about literalizing uh, uh, figures of speech that just doesn't enter into discourse using Hughes' uh, framework. No, that's true. This is this is clearly just a thing that happens with with citation in general. Um, but it, you know, because of what I'm doing right now, it stood out to me. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> um, so, do we want to go into the history? Yeah, sure. Let's, I guess, we may as well just start with the utopia and go forward. Which really yep. is literally, he, he starts with, pretty much starts with Moore's utopia. Yes, it's... No, not, not pretty much. The first sentence of The Alternative Islands starts in the first part of Thomas Moore's utopia. Yes, it's... So there you go. Yeah, the first section's called The Alternative Island. Uh, not all of these chapters are uh, extremely alliterative, but you do have the alternative island going de- directly into radical rhapsody and romantic recoil. Yeah, uh, yeah. He likes he likes to give himself some... He likes chapter titles with a bit of flair. Yeah, and then after that, when he gets into talking about Vernon Wells, it becomes incredibly dry chapter titles, which I just think is very funny, given how he describes the shift with Vernon Wells. Yeah. Um. So yeah, uh... Moore's Utopia. <laughs> yeah. Oh. And, um, he, uh, he, he sees, um, he, he talks about the idea that Utopia, like, basically synthesizes all previously existing, what he calls SF forms, um, including, like, epic. those... Sorry? Of its epic, like, in its uh, yes. particular... Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and so that, that is his kind of justification for Utopia being, like, his real key text. Um, and, I mean, fair enough, you know, it, it named the genre, so it yeah, is a no, key text. It's, it's um, highly influential, it's got a clear connection, and he's sort of, uh, drawing utopia forward and backward forward in the sense of and then this inspires all these other works and influences these things and creates the literary genre of utopia which he identifies as a sub sf like an sf subgenre sure but he's also referring back to and here's all these greek things which are kind of sfnal that more is referencing and things like that here's these classical greek elements here's these uh you know here's these homeric elements again drawing this long history yeah, yeah. And, like, the big change that he sees happening with Moore is that Moore locates, you know, this, like, land of, of peace and plenty, this, uh, what is it, um, more perfect... Earthly paradise? Yeah, yeah. That he locates it um, in the present in an alternative space, um, yes. rather than sort of, like, outside of, of time. And also, um, because there are versions of the earthly paradise that he identifies in chapter 3, back when we read that, and uh, here as well, which are in space, 
and in time, but are not in history. They don't have a founding moment. They don't have a story of how they became created. They just are out there somewhere. And uh, more in Utopia has, is it King Utopus? I, I can never remember that guy's name. Um, but there's, there's a specific king who cuts off the, uh, who like literally takes a peninsula and cuts it off with a canal to make the island of Utopia and found the perfect city there and so on. And so yeah. there's a very explicit historical, like I think he even gives a vague time period when King Utopus decided to do this thing, right? Yeah, I, I think that's right. Although it's also interesting that, um, you know, the the question of like how Utopia came to be is something that's kind of like a like a real question in Utopia, the book. Um, not so much for historical reasons and more for like kind of philosophical ones as in like, well, uh, how were the perfected people who can live in this perfected state created? Because if you tried to, you know, ultimately the more character in the dialogue that is Utopia is not convinced of, of Utopia. Mm-hmm. And, and part of that is because he believes that, like, human nature is, is too bad to actually achieve such a place. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it's in contrast to the where, where we'll get much later um, with uh, News from Nowhere, where there's actually a certain sense of, like, no, here's the historical progress that took place that allowed ordinary human beings to make this happen. Mm-hmm. Um, not to say that that makes Utopia, like, non... Like, it, it is it is important that it's located in the world and that uh, Hithliday went there, you know, fictionally speaking. Yeah. Um. Okay, this is, this is slightly, uh, it's connected to this. Um, he discusses uh, the Tempest somewhere in here, right? Um, I think so. Yeah, here, let me... Oh, I can't give you page numbers. That won't be useful. No, no, to that's you. fine. But if you can tell me around where it is, yeah. Da, 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 da. Uh, so it's actually, yeah, it's after um, he talks about Rabelais and Swift. Oh, that's that's fine then. We'll we'll get there eventually. Uh, I just have a specific uh, bone to pick there that's connected to this idea of perfect people and where could they come from. No, let's get there. It's um, it's oh, in section it section no, no, no. two point three. Yeah, I found it. I found it. I found yeah, it. let's gotcha. let's feel free to skip around a little bit. I yeah. Think. So the specific thing, and the reason I thought of this is that it's mentioned that Hithloday, um, uh, is uh is also introduced as a participant in the voyages of that Vespucci who had lent his name to America and set Europe abuzz by describing the quote perfect liberty of the natives' tribal communism and Epicureanism. And this is a this is a major influence on the utopian genre is these stories of Native American societies that are very different from European societies. Often they obviously they are uh, wildly exoticized, right? They are either presented as perfect utopias or as you know horrific, and we need to go and change it immediately, and all that sort of thing. All of which shapes colonial desires, and uh, the Tempest uh, has a speech where this one guy. Um, Shoot, one of the, like, the old knight who's loyal to the good king, 
but is kind of like presented as a bit foolish or perhaps too idealistic. Uh, he gives this whole speech about how perfect uh, society is the, um, this, uh, you know, uh, in fact, this, this speech is discussed Gonzalo, that's it. The speech is discussed by uh, Suvin saying um, that in The Tempest, the uh, Gonzalo's speech uh, has this sort of these contradictions. It has all these different high, you know, things about both uh, perfect sort of like uh, parentage and fatherhood and also a total lack of hierarchy and these things that contradict. And he's presenting this as, oh, Shakespeare is parodying these sorts of things. He's taking swipes at these ideas of utopia. But actually, Shakespeare was mostly quoting an actual thing that claimed these were all true of Native American societies and was presenting them as utopias. He was he straightforwardly takes the Golden Age speech from a different work with very little change and places it in the mouth of Gonzalo. So it's not a an unfair parody of utopian discourse of the time it's just the utopian discourse of the time yeah yeah um he he really uh you know is he, he really sees um the tempest as fundamentally conservative yes he sees uh, that of a lot of texts yes um which you know i don't necessarily think that is like i don't think that's totally nuts right to say no that no no that but um but it's he he doesn't uh see like um he, he, hmm. I he, he basically no, sorry. yeah sorry no go on i was i was uh, kind of no no it's fine it's, it's an interesting thing i think it's fair to say that suvin dislikes when a work has sfnal qualities has science fictional qualities has cognitive estrangement but goes on to f- come to a conclusion he dislikes, even if that conclusion is not presented as foreordained, because he feels that it's, especially when it takes a utopian or creative prospect and then says, and here's how this goes really badly, he feels that's to some extent going against the point of the exercise. So the fact that, uh, I mean, first of all, The Tempest does a very straightforward patriarchal structure. Prospero is literally dad and he's God. But uh, the fact that Prospero ends by burning his books, leaving the magical island, and or drowning his books and burying his staff. I can never remember the specific things he does to them. Um, I believe even, he, he drowns the books and breaks the staff, I think. Yeah, it's it's some some combination of these things that gets rid of his magic and sort of returns to normal life and the... Uh, and combined with the uh, comedy about utopian ideas at the time, Suvin takes this as a sort of fundamentally anti-utopian work. Not necessarily dystopian, which is how he normally uses anti-utopia, but a an anti... Uh, it's against the project of utopia, uh, or at least it's skeptical of utopian. And frankly, I think that Suvin doesn't like that skepticism, and we see this also in his treatment of Frankenstein. He doesn't like science fiction that suggests, here's how the good plan could go awry. He likes science yeah. fiction that's either about how the good plan works out to his specifications, or about how a bad plan could go badly. Yes, I, I think that's true. And, like, I can understand there's something in some, you know, uh, dystopian fiction that I find to be kind of not playing fair 
Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. Which is like, you know, like we've set up these rules purely in order to show them break down. And it's like, well, I didn't buy your setup in the first place. So I'm I'm not like it doesn't convince me of anything to show me that it became terrible. Yeah. Um yeah. but I I think, you know, uh that doesn't mean that any any work that sets up a utopian possibility and then collapses it is inherently like doing something kind anti of anti uh, Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think that that's an interesting point. And between Moore and The Tempest, uh, we have uh, Rabelais. Rob, sorry, I'm going to keep fucking that up. Well, I mean, it's a French name, so neither of us is going to pronounce it right technically, so don't worry about it. Just do what you're doing. Yeah. So he's a... And actually, this is true of a number of uh, leftist materialist literary uh, historians, so this isn't unique to Suvin. He's just super into uh, Rabelais' giants, Gargantua and Pantagruel, who are like uh, hedonistic, materialistic. Um, they came up in Seven Beauties. Yeah, as grotesque. Yes, um. and like the, the heroic grotesque, the good grotesque. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and so you have these, uh, the sensual grotesque, even. Sensual is a term that comes up a lot in Suvin's description of it, which is about, you know, uh, I mean, effectively, it's talking about rationality and mind not as separate from the body, but is inherently sort of united with it and uh, um, rejoicing in it. And that's, you know, there's an obvious appeal to a materialist there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he he uh, he, he very, like, directly says about the about this book um about these books uh matter is treated as not only the sole reality but also the supreme good of which there can never be too much so yeah hence giants yes Um, (sighs) yeah there's also um he uses uh the elements that are uh, referential in rabelized to refer back to lucian the guy who i will go to my deathbed screaming is not a is not writing science fiction it's it's different he's doing a parody it doesn't uh, just it's amazing how often you hear from people oh yeah i I heard that science fiction is actually as old as rome there was this one roman author who wrote science fiction it drives me mad yeah yeah um (laughs) well okay here's here's a question um so okay if lucian in writing his you know story of like space travel um is writing a parody, which which Suvin says. He literally yeah, uses yeah. the word parody. Um, what do you make of what he's doing with Swift? I because, think that... My perspective... Because Suvin also claims Swift as science fiction. Oh, yeah, so... so uh, or um, Gulliver's Travels, specifically. Yeah, 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 yeah. I am willing to accept Gulliver's Travels as proto-science fictional, as, as being part of the closer tradition that leads to it. Um, pretty directly. Uh, And I'm willing to say that Swift has qualities that to me feel more science fictional than Lucian. The big part of it is, what is Swift parodying? He's parodying, they're both parodying um, like uh, journey narratives. They're both parodying these sort of travel narratives that go to incredible places that are just absolutely unbelievable, where magical things occur, and then the, you know, person comes back to tell you all about them. They're both parodying uh, narratives that were popular at the time and, you know, continue to be popular through basically the vast majority of human history. The travel narrative where you go to a weird place and there's things that you'd never see where you are now 
Saying that that is a major influence on science fiction, totally fine. Very much willing to support it. But Lucian is specifically doing a mythological parody of the travel narrative in which the elements that appear are mythological, are specifically tying into that. And, you know, he says that, uh, by he, I mean Suvin, does say that Lucian laughingly settled the score with the whole tradition of vegetative myths, from the mythological tales themselves through Homer's voyages to popular Hellenistic adventure romances. Meanwhile, Swift is specifically parodying the voyages of discovery of his own time, the uh, travel narratives of his era, which were much more, in a certain sense, grounded in not mythological speculation, but in sort of physical, sociopolitical stuff. And he tries to, and he stays within certain bounds while doing it. Obviously, those bounds get less uh, later in Swift's voyages. You go from small people and big people and magnets to, uh, and hyper-rational horses, to including, like, total immortality as a novum, which is definitely, you know, it's, it's not quite a quote-unquote science fictional novum. But at the same time, the way he's producing it is much more materialistic, much more rationalistic, much more looking through the lens of an era that has an episteme closer to what I consider to be cognitive estrangement's framework. None of which is to say Lucian isn't rational, just that he is not specifically responding to a rationalistic, scientific worldview to parody it. Yeah, all right. Fair enough. Sorry, that um, went on for a while. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I literally asked you to do that. I just thought it was important because I it needed to clarify that it's not just the element of parody or satire yeah i know yeah. those two things are different but it is difficult to know the difference between them um yeah it's, anyway it's also that they do a lot of these works do both right yeah 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 like swift's lilliput has elements of parody the whole thing is a the the whole thing is generally a satire etc etc yeah i yeah okay <sighs> um but I think that Suvin wants to say Lucian is science fictional because Lucian is absolutely an example of the uh, demystifying, uh, not necessarily materialistic, but sort of skeptical tradition of, well, looking at a bunch of religious and traditional ideas and going poo-poo to that and making fun of it. And that is absolutely part of what he wants to claim for the science fictional tradition. Its earthly paradise is set against religious heavens. It's, uh, you know, hypothetical submerged tradition set against the uh, successfully recorded higher tradition. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> and... You know, at the end of this sort of prehistory of science fiction setting in the alternative island, or a large chunk of it, uh, not quite the end, uh, the end of the Lucian bit, um, he does discuss how this science fictional tradition as he sees it didn't manage to change much. Uh, that the sort of uh, high hopes and, uh, you know, uh, utopian ideals for the new world it became colonialism. It, the uh, more died beheaded. Rabelais barely escaped the stake. Knowledge and sense were again viciously sundered by religious wars and monarchist absolutism. In the profound crisis of the age, the first wave of the revolutionary middle class had separated itself from the people and had been destroyed or absorbed by church and state. 
At the beginning of the 17th century, this was clearly spelled out by the burning at the stake of Giordano Bruno, the heroic philosopher who had proclaimed an infinite universe with an infinite number of autonomous and equivalent worlds. And there's a bit of a real trick there in what Subin's doing, because Bruno was a religious mystic. He was yeah, deeply it's also, religious. It's also wild to claim more as, like, the sort of, uh, you know, standard bearer of, like, um, you know, kind of intellectual and liberatory revolts against, um, you know... Uh, uh, monarchism? Monarchism, yes. Because, I mean, yes, he was uh, killed by his king, but only after, like, serving him faithfully for most of his life. Yeah. And, like, uh, persecuting Protestants and things like that. Um, which is yeah. not to say... I, I, don't, I don't mean that as a gotcha on more. I think, like, this is one of the things that shows us that the idea of what, like, the improvement of the human lot would mean is so, so different in different historical periods. Like, I don't think Moore is trying to be liberatory um, because, like, liberation is not what he sees as the good. Yeah, and I think that the, you know, the idea that Moore, who is, like you say, an actual direct advisor to the king, is somehow uh, a representative of this submerged tradition it starts to make you wonder how submerged and how present that tradition really is, how much there is a suppressed underlying SFNL tradition that has been here the whole time, rather than, you know, a complicated intellectual history where cognition and estrangement, as as Suvin wants to universalize them, have been present in all these different movements. They haven't always aligned with this, uh, you know, this, basically, the world spirit is not science fiction. Or yeah, science fiction is not the world spirit is probably a better way of phrasing that. I also think it would have been much more convincing for him to say, like, oh, um, you know, there's this, like, suppressed tradition. If he had brought up more suppressed works. Traditions? <laughs> yeah, like, and, like, something that is a huge gap for me personally here is um, uh, The Blazing World by Margaret Cavendish. Yeah, that is, is... Which is also a, like, uh, you know... Early modern... Mid- early modern utopian fiction which like it's not so much that it was like contemporarily politically suppressed but like it was ignored for a long time and i like in in uh, to be i don't know if this is fair or even more damning i don't know that it was particularly well rediscovered during the era when suvin was writing this no it totally wasn't um it, like, it, it's, it, the rediscovery of that book is, like, relatively recent, but it's not like it wasn't, it's not like we didn't have manuscripts of it, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it, it really is a pretty classic case of the suppression of women's writing. Yeah. Um, and I think this is something that Suvin, I mean, you and I talked about this beforehand. Suvin has, like, a persistent problem with women, to be totally honest. I, I do want to say that I don't think it's that Suvin... I don't think that Suvin has a problem with women science fiction writers right now, but I do think that he had... And I think that's an important distinction to make. For example, he is... I mean, he's just writes in glowing terms about Le Guin basically whenever she shows up, because she's a cool leftist science fiction author. And he does explicitly in in this section, and by that I mean like the entire history section, you know, talk about the... uh, 
often popular and basically accurate idea that you can that the uh, key to revolution, to transformation, to the improvement of society is going to be the improvement of women's lot in society, right? Like he is not he is not without those I would say contemporary feminist elements, but I do think that his very traditional history, the fact that he's drawing on these very classically well-known names means that he reproduces a lot of that suppression of women's writing and the assumptions about the role of female characters in these older works up through the, like, 1920s. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's also a, a very similar kind of, um, you know, uh, we talked about how he explicitly is like, yeah, I'm just going to focus on, like, the Western literary tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, and this this leads him to really imbibe some ideas about, I mean, he literally uses the phrase, like, slightly rearranged noble savage with apparently no kind of um, critique at one he, point. Yeah, he just describes a work as framing something in that way. Like, that's, he's just like, yeah, that's a thing they did, moving on. Yeah, yeah, and like he's he is not wrong. It is like factual. He's he's talking about um, a he describes the the noble savage as quote a recurrent figure, which is true. Yeah, but um, it, it so much about this history of science fiction made me really excited for um, a book that we're gonna do eventually. Um, oh, the one on called, colonialism. Yeah, uh, Colonialism and the Emergence of Science Fiction is the name of the book I want to do, right? I yeah, think. yeah, that, I believe that is. Yeah, um, I should look up the name of the author if I'm going to talk about it. But Yeah, anyway. yeah, well, we, we haven't read it yet, so let's just... Yeah, yeah, I just want people, if other people want to go look up what I'm talking about, I want them to be able to, that's all. Okay. Um, the author is John Ryder. Um, anyhow, that's a book that I would love to read because I think this... This idea of, like, these travel narratives and, like, uh, you know, uh, contact with the quote-unquote new world being such a huge influence on science fiction, like, it jumps out constantly in this book, um, but he's not interested in problematizing it. He's just sort of interested in presenting it. Yeah, and I do think that given this is the first, I would say, deep history of science fiction, uh in a lot of ways, like it's the first attempt to make science fiction this uh, this part of a large literary tradition. Again, the one of the crucial things that comes out of this is simply the idea that utopia and science fiction have a close relationship and that the utopian form informed science fiction is to some extent cemented by this book as far as I'm aware. Like this is one of his major uh, inclusions. So I do think that there's a, you know, for a book written for 1979, there's a good argument for the sort of just stating, and this figure shows up a bunch, and I'm not going to go into detail about it, but it does yeah. make you want more, especially coming for coming to this book at this point in time and with the criticisms of its history that we have, it does make the second half of it a lot more uh, hit or miss than the first half. And there's other things that he is interested in, like, problematizing and critiquing. Like Mary Shelley. Yeah, we'll get to that. Uh, I, I would Soon. love to get to that, because we don't have that much time. And, and we, yeah, uh, yeah, no, I, there's, uh, there's a number of other early moderns who get referenced. Uh, he's very dismissive of Bacon's The New Atlantis, which is often pointed to as, like, really clear proto-science fiction. And frankly, I think he has a very good argument for it. Like, this is... There are... 
There are male writers he's out to shoot down, and in this case, I definitely agree with him. Uh, where he basically says, yeah, this is a depiction of a society in which technology and scientific knowledge, uh, this is Bacon's New Atlantis, uh, scientific knowledge are used to create material plenty, and also that is the only thing it imagines, and all social relations remain stable, all patriarchal social conventions remain the same. Um, and so he describes it as being kind of grotesque from his perspective, because it's at the same time going, yes, in the future we will have all these incredible new ways of changing the weather and producing the you know wealth from the earth and so on and so on, and also literally nothing about society will change in any way. And in this way, he very nicely implies that Bacon's New Atlantis is, uh, if it is a forerunner of science fiction, it's a forerunner of bad science fiction. Yeah. Um, and that is definitely something that you can't say about Moore's Utopia. Like, even the parts of Moore's Utopia that, like, certainly as a modern reader, maybe even as a contemporary one, you could point to and be like, well, this is a continuity with Moore's England. This is something that hasn't... You know, th this is a thing that's bad that's still there. Yeah. Or even a thing that's bad that's been added. Like, you know, a thing that often comes up and is can be shocking for modern readers is that Moore's Utopia features slavery. Yeah. Um, but it is like a bizarre form of slavery that is like used in ways that would be unfamiliar to Moore's readers. And yes. It's, it's not something where... I. I don't think that it's meant to necessarily be, like, as shocking to Moore's readers as it feels to us today, but, like, mm -hmm. it's not something that, uh, you, you can't point to that and be like, the social arrangements are exactly the same as they are in England, because they're not. Um, yeah, yeah. <sighs> and then, you know, um, we have Cyrano de Bergerac, we have, uh, Swift. Uh, wait, oh, sorry, not... sorry. That's that's a fictional character. No, you're he's right. Talking about an author named Cyrano, but I'm sorry, I just I just screwed up. Yep, yep. It's okay. Um, I I have no idea who Cyrano is. The majority of the readers that he just like cites here are people I've never heard of before reading this book, and I I just want to be honest about that. Yeah, um, no, like there's the, there's the, a num. He is digging up uh, some early modern figures who wrote satires that have what he considers to be SFNL elements. But they're not, like, suppressed uh, suppressed works. They're just minor works. And I think that's worth noting. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Uh, Gulliver's Travels we touched on briefly, which uh, has a bunch of... He, he does have a really interesting set of readings of Gulliver's Travels, but also they're not super novel, frankly, because I think we've all heard a lot more about Gulliver's Travels. Uh, and he's not really trying to say that there's anything super novel or interesting, uh, except in the sense that this is sort of, he sees Swift as bringing together all of these different threads. In the same way Moore did previously, Swift is now bringing together all of the uh, forms of the early modern satire and SFNL traditions that Suvin's pointing out, and brings them together into Gulliver's Travels, which runs through them all and sort of, I think he describes them as, uh, reproduces them, then destroys them. Yeah. Uh, then there's just an... Okay, can we... Yes. We, we have to move on. It, we cannot do this level of detail in every chapter. That's fair. Um, 
Which, like, to be clear, I would be okay kind of skimming over some of the later chapters because I don't have a lot to say about them. I yeah, think yeah. I had more to say about this one, but um, I really want to get on to uh, the shift to anticipation, uh, romantic raps or radical rhapsody and romantic recoil. Yes. Um, and I think we uh, can summarize this pretty efficiently with uh, Suvin thinks that Percy B. Shelley is a uh, good, if kind of flighty, science fictional author in his uh, poetry, and that Mary Shelley is a uh, resoundingly influential but fundamentally flawed science fiction author in Frankenstein. Yeah, and he's using them kind of both symbolically as, like, uh, you know, representative of movements um, at, like, the turn of the 19th century. Um, and uh, there, there's a there's a, a great, like, uh, sentence that he has that I do want to read that I think mm -hmm. is like a really good summary of why he thinks that this shift in science fiction happens. The instauration of capitalist production as the dominant and finally all pervasive way of life engendered a fundamental reorientation of human practice and imagination. A wished for or feared future becomes the new space of the cognitive and increasingly of the everyday imagination no doubt in intimate connection with and dependence from the shift from the social power of land the power of capital. So this is about a shift from space to time. Yes. Because because capital accrues in time, moves in time, and accumulates in time. And land is space. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. No, it's, it's a really cool uh, point. And I think it goes into... There's a, I have a big bucket in my mind of just, like, uh, reasons why I think science fiction starts with Frankenstein. Like, that's the point where you can just say, and now science fiction is here. And he just added another one. But, like, yeah. there's, there's, like, a dozen things in there. It's really overdetermined because of the remarkable social shakeups going on then in the literary world that first produces self-described science fiction. And you can go read The Order of Things and add another one. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like that <laughs> one's already in the bucket, because the concept of the uh, techno-scientific well, no. episteme... No, it is already in the bucket. I, I, I'm just joking. Giving me shit? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not giving you shit. I'm saying, like, I agree with you, and, and the things I've been reading support my agreement. That's fair. That's fair. Oh, but... So yes, there's uh, there's this shift from space to time. Uh, there's this shift to thinking about uh, future societies as well as sort of uh, alternate. You know that this is the difference between uh, the shift to anticipation and the alternative island. It's shifting to anticipating the future rather than an alternative present on an island somewhere. It's it's very straightforward, really. They're good chapter titles, Bron. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um... And I don't think we need to go into why he likes Percy Shelley that much, because Percy Shelley's, you know, he's a radical, his poetry's all about unbounded human freedom and overcoming systems of oppression and imagining these, uh, these novel uh, human societies exploding forth. It's very classically utopian in a lot of ways, even when it ends tragically. Yeah, and he, he really sees um, Shelley as, like, I don't know if he would straight up say Shelley is a utopian socialist. Um, cause I don't know that that's like accurate, but he's clearly seeing Shelley's utopian writing as like being in a tradition with the classic 19th century utopian socialist yeah. writing I... or, or not even often earlier utopian. Yeah. 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 Also. And 
I think that the Shelleys were like self-described uh, socialists. They just weren't super uh, politically active because they were off being goth poets. <laughs> um. uh, but yeah, so very straightforwardly likes that sort of um, that sort of energy, that uh, dedication, that uh, hopefulness and lyricism. He's he's very invested in the idea of like a like Promethean fire and light, yes. which is also honestly. Something... Sorry, go on. No, no, go on. Honestly, I think you can make the argument that the reason he has it out for Mary Shelley is that she called her novel the Modern Prometheus and then took all the tragic parts of the Prometheus myth and centered them. Yeah, yeah. There's a. Uh... Let me see. Um. There's two sentences that I just highlighted with the comment, <laughs> go to hell. Um, when the Promethean overreacher finally acknowledges the rightness of Jovian power and its values, he turns into a rightly punishable Faust. What Orwell would expose as brainwashing, Mary Shelley shows as just expiation. Yeah, so t- to unpack that a little... Um... I mean, basically, the Promethean figure, which he's established with uh, Percy and more generally in how he talks about science fiction, is, you know, the human intellect claiming power for humanity and sort of surging forward. And in Prometheus Unbound, Shelley's big poem play thing, uh, get get at me, romanticists, um, he says, yeah, here is Prometheus, you know, achieving and overthrowing Jove and becoming the new defining spirit of the world. And then in the modern Prometheus, Frankenstein, you have uh, Victor going, ah, fuck, I fucked up, I fucked up, I fucked up, and everything going to hell. And so he's saying, this is Shelley saying that actually you should submit to traditional authority. Prometheus shouldn't get to rewrite the world. And, uh, you know, Big Brother is right which means that she is, in fact, aligning herself against Orwell's anti-dystopian, anti-authoritarian things. It's just like, come the fuck on, man. Yeah, I also just think it's really, like, bad. Like, brainwashing as a concept, I think, is kind of intellectually suspect. To extend it back into the 19th century is absurd. Yeah, I mean, basically what he's saying is... uh, Shelley is making the argument for traditional values and what Orwell will, the kind of traditional values of authoritarianism and patriarchy that Orwell will later, you know, go against with Big Brother. And it's, I just don't think that's a particularly useful way of talking about either of these authors. It feels like Suvin just can't comprehend tragedy. I think that he may consider, if not all tragedies, because there's other tragedies, including um, uh, one of Shelley's uh, poems, that he's willing to countenance as Esefnel, I really do think it's that he feels that a tragedy should either be a certain kind of, like, noble, but the world was too strong, but we did the right thing kind of tragedy, or a dystopia, a situation where it's simply, you know, the a bad plan went badly, Right. Whereas he basically wants to defend the creation of the creature as a good act, and because, in part, it has its direct metaphorical elements of representing the French Revolution or the the Enlightenment revolutions in general, there's a whole argument there that I think is quite well-founded, that to some extent the 
creature and the travails of Victor Frankenstein reflect the disappointed radicalism of Mary and Percy Shelley, that they've had this experience of uh, seeing what was supposed to be this like new form in, in the world and this transformation collapse into violence and eventually empire. And Suvin's response to this is, how dare you depict that? How dare you? You're not supposed to do that with science fiction. It's supposed to show us winning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. And um. so he really takes it out on Frankenstein. He insists that it's unclear, that it's structurally uh, poorly constructed, that it's, you know, that the... why he, he literally asks, why did the creature have to be so ugly? And it's like, my guy, when has the middle class ever responded to a peasant uprising or, like, peasants demanding rights or anything like that without going, but they're so uncultured? When has the, like, the... When has the hierarchy's top ever responded to anyone on the bottom claiming to be human with anything other than, oh, no, you're not because of something? And it's just like, the fact that this has been allegorized in the creature doesn't mean that Mary Shelley is saying the creature deserved to die. Right. And it also doesn't necessarily mean that these are, like, 100% Mary Shelley's emotions that she is, like, putting directly into the story. Um, like, I, I think, I think he, he psychologizes in general. He definitely psychologizes Percy Shelley too, but like Mm -hmm. the way, the degree to which he's like, Ooh, Mary Shelley was scared and like regretful. I don't like it. It feels a little sexist to me. Yeah. It's also like, it's also very much declaring a certain reading of the relationship between Victor and the creature that I strongly disagree with, which is the idea that either, that basically Victor is Faust. First of all, I don't think that that's a good way of looking at uh, his position in the novel, or that the creature is inherently evil, that it had to be destroyed. And this is, I think, what really trips him up in his analysis, is that he can't get past the conclusion, and frankly, the contingency of the conclusion. He admits, and he says that it's one of Shelley's, you know, better moments, is when Victor says at the end, I failed, but perhaps someone else will succeed. And for me, that's like such a fundamental moment. You can't say, oh, that was good, but ignore it. You have to admit that that's part of the thesis. This revolution failed. This creature was not treated right, Was un- did not grow up with support, was not allowed to become a citizen, became a murderer, therefore, and ultimately destroyed and was destroyed. But that didn't have to happen. And it's the responses of the people around the creature that made it happen, not the creature's own nature. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And like, um. sorry, just a, a last deep frustration. In Frankenstein, there's a whole sequence that he doesn't mention a single time because, frankly, it's a weird digression from the narrative that is all about, like, prison reform and the judicial system and how innocent people or people who are simply have grown up in bad conditions are being, you know, imprisoned and executed and so on. And it's not super sophisticated anti-carceralism or anything, but it's an awareness of environment creating crime and therefore the idea that the crime should not be blamed on the criminal, but on the environment. And if you don't 
realize that that applies to the creature in every possible way, I don't know how you read the book. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I'm mad about this. No, you should oh. be. And he has such good readings of Verg and Wells. Speaking of which, actually. <laughs> yeah, no, um, very fair. Let's let's just let other people read Anticipating the Sunburst, Dream, Vision, or Nightmare. Yeah, um, yeah, that's that's all the Victorian uh, utopias and dystopias yeah. and stuff. There, it's it's interesting, but um, we have limited time and we want to yeah, focus. Yeah. So we're gonna we're gonna talk about Vernon Wells. Yes. Uh, Actually, I think we can talk about them both at the same time in a certain way, which I because they're both. Uh, I mean, Wells is the ro- the scientific romance, and Verne's is the roman scientifique, which uh, is I just think cute that he makes sure to call one of them by the French one and one of them by the English one, and I think it's accurate. But he makes this argument that uh, just as we discussed the idea that uh, science fiction f- sort of refocuses from uh, into time and the future. Uh, Verne is, to some extent, returned to space. Verne's all about machines that turn time into space, that uh, bring things closer. They're either Nemo's submarine, the Nautilus, or the shell that goes to the moon, or, you know, around the world in 80 days. All of these are, I mean, it's literal political liberalism, and it's the novum that shrinks the world by letting you move faster, but ultimately you return to where you began. You circulate. And there's a bunch of uh, science fiction study stuff about Verne's circulation, actually, because it's a very, it's a key word in liberal capitalism of the 1800s. Yeah, yeah. He also, there's a, there's a sentence that I really like, um, where he's basically talking about these ideas. Um, but all these innovations are vehicles of an epoch of communication for the age of industrial liberalism. And by communication, he really does mean circulation. Um, like, he doesn't mean people talking to each other. He means, like, uh, you know, um, movement from place to place. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think... Or, or rather... Like, sorry, he sorry. does mean talking and, and, like, people communicating with each other, but he means that in a way that has, that is uh, kind of philosophically united with these physical yeah, it's in space. It's about your ability to overcome distance, to collapse distance, that you can be anywhere and talk to someone on the other side of the world and move information around and move people around at this incredible distance. And he points out that, for example, they don't land on the moon in A Voyage to the Moon or... I think it's called a voyage. The you, they the shell goes around it and then comes back to Earth. And uh, similarly, the like figure of Nemo, the really interesting uh, like colonial subject turned antagonist to empire slash pirate. You know, the the coolest thing Verne ever wrote, frankly. Um, ends up kind of uh, self neutralizing and being removed from the world as he dies, and his and the Nautilus is sunk in the mysterious island. One of Verne's later works. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's almost like there's, there's something that there's some way in which Verne can't truly get to a new place. Yes, that Verne, uh, Verne is all about flattening out space into a a field in which people can move, and the true other place, the the alternative island or the um, the other world of other kinds cannot be reached because the very me- the me- the machines and means by which 
space is bound and space is contained also flattens it out and removes these other worlds. Even when you do something like go a voyage into the center of the earth or go underwater in 20,000 leagues beneath the sea, the machines are and the machines and the methods are flattening it out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then this leads him to call Vernon the master of space, uh, which is great because then Wells is the master of time and it sounds like they're cosmic entities of some kind. Or it, Dark Souls it, it bosses. It really does. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, let's not... The, Let's not dwell but, on that one. No, 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 but it's good. Um, <laughs> and he also talks about, like, um, he talks about Vern's work in kind of two, like, sections. Um, and so, like, he's really focused on this earlier, um, I think he calls it a cycle, or does he only use that phrase later when he's talking about Wells? I, um, I don't know. I didn't highlight that one, sorry. Yeah, but this this earlier like section of Verne's work that really is about this like uh, this joy of uh, communication, circulation, space travel, um, and like the conversion of time into space. Yeah. Um, and then uh, quoting here, in the second phase, he substituted for spatial wonder some sensitive prefigurations of the dark forces menacing the liberal society. So. Um, you know, that he also, uh, that, that Vern also ends up writing works that are more, um, you know, uh... Negative? Yeah, more negative, um, and, uh, more about, the, like, the, sort of, the fear of time, um. Yeah, yeah, the, the idea that the future is coming and we're not super happy about it, that it's, it's not coming out the way we wanted. Uh, and he also has a very straightforward sort of science fiction Robinsonade with The Mysterious Island, which I think is one of his last works, which, uh, attempts to sort of depict the entire creation of a society from almost nothing via scientific and technical knowledge. Also, no women. Uh, yeah. In, in Vern in general. Yeah, in Vern in general. He points out that there's just, there's just no women in Vern. Yeah. Um. And so uh, he then, you know, makes the direct connection forward to Wells, which is the idea that, uh, you know, um, quote, Wells fought so furiously against being the English Vern that in some cases he apparently undertook to go Vern one better. So, for example, in the underground life of Cavor's moon and in the time traveler's depths of time, as compared to the descents in Journey to the Center of the Earth or uh, Les Indes Noirs, but also in his whole program of meeting a different life, as opposed to Verne's shying away from it. Directly and through Wells, Verne is thus behind all modern SF dealing with the conquest of space and social engineering. And I think yeah. that's, yeah, I think there's a really interesting sort of Verne to Wells junction being made here, where Wells is, I mean, in many ways, he sort of posits Wells as the direct inspiration and definer of modern SF. There's like a section here just called SF After Wells uh, that is like the contemporary era or going towards it. And he makes a good case for it. Yeah, no, I think that's true. Um, do you want to move forward then to the... He, he devotes yeah, two whole chapters. To Wells, yeah. And 
One of these chapters I don't think we really want to go into too much because it's just, and I do recommend it, it's just a reading of the time machine at a sort of deep structural level. And there's one bit from it that I want to pull, but otherwise it is just so much talking about the time machine. Yeah. And What's like, your one bit? Oh, so the one bit is, uh, to draw, is, oh, it's, uh, thus, Wells's time machine has in the organization of its cognitive thematic material hit upon the law, inherited as much else was from Gulliver's travels, and apparently unshaken in subsequent significant SF, that the cognitive nucleus of narration or theme can become a principle of narrative organization only by fitting into the storytelling parameters of pace, sequence, symbolic systematization, and so on, which is to say, uh, slightly less abstrusely, Wells hits upon the idea that the structure of the story replicates the novum in truly great SF. The time machine is structured by its ideas of uh, sort of like evolutionary degradation, the idea that we might evolve into forms horrible to us now, the idea that society can collapse and dissolve, and that eventually entropy will undo the work of evolution— and it's structured as a reverse phylogenetic tree in which, as he goes further into the future, the categories of a opening up evolutionary tree close down bit by bit towards eventual uh, reversal of abiogenesis with the terminal beach, the image of the world dying that the traveler sees in the ultimate distant future, the eclipse of the sun. And each of these sections is also shorter and shorter and shorter as we race down the tree towards that conclusion, and all of this means that the novum of the time machine can be structured into the storytelling at a deep level. And that's his argument for why the time machine is this, like, exemplary work of, contempt of like, SF as we now understand it. Yeah, and I, I think that's, like, hard to argue with, really. Yeah, no, it's super cool. Like, I we I certainly have my issues with some of his readings in The Time Machine. There's characters I think he's just wrong about, etc. But the overarching structural read is incredible. But it's, it's also interesting, by the way, to note that um, he's so much more tolerant of, um, I mean, literally, like, ambiguity uh in wells like the yeah like here's here's a sentence um yet such virtuosity cannot mask the fundamental ambiguity that constitutes both the richness and the weakness of wells is he horrified or grimly elated by the high price of evolution the island of dr moreau does he condemn class divisions or simply the existence of a menacing lower class the time machine etc etc which i think is really true like when you read wells it's hard to tell on some level, what his politics are, what his orientation toward his subject is. Yeah. And yet, in Frankenstein... <laughs> like... Yeah, no, it's... I really think... I really think that the, the word Prometheus had a meaningful effect on his reading of that book. And yeah, I... Yeah, no, I, And also sexism. I don't think you're wrong, but, but yeah, like, um, he's, he's perfectly willing to elaborate wells's structure and the way that that is virtuosic first and then say well but it's it's unclear what he's communicating with this and that's something that you have to you know i i don't think that type of ambiguity is necessarily a bad thing in a story um yeah i think it can i think it's not inaccurate to call it a richness and a weakness 
Yeah, um. no, I, I think that's true. Um, and yeah, no, I agree that uh, the similar ambiguity in Frankenstein is treated as like, but, 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 etc. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh... Can I bring up one somewhat silly bit, or not silly, but like a footnote that I think is um, of interest? Oh, is is this the, the sex one? Yes, it is the sex one. Um, uh, yep, go for it. it it's, it's just, uh, he's, um, he's discussing uh, the time machine and um, the, like, the idea that the Morlocks and the Eloi are, like, different species of humanity. Um and he footnotes that, uh, you know, the, the difference, tangentially be it remarked that Huxley explained at length in his works, and no doubt in his lectures, which Wells listened was to a student. Yeah, Wells was yeah. a student of Huxley, and this becomes a major influence on the time machine. The difference between physiological and morphological species, which is intricate and mainly resolvable by experimental crossbreeding. And he goes on to basically say in this, in this, uh, in this footnote that, he wishes Wells had put sex with aliens in his books because he thinks yeah, it belongs basically. there. Yeah, and basically. And, and he says, Wells's private and later literary efforts at sexual liberation prove, I think, that he passed up the clearly present sexual considerations only out of deference to very strong social taboos. So not only is he saying that there should have been sex with aliens. That there in, would have been sex with aliens. Yeah, that Wells wanted to put sex with aliens Yeah, it's in there. it's a wild statement. I also like how he, um, he goes on to be, like, uh, very snide about current SF at the time, uh, both its prudishness about sex and its more... Uh, more recent for him, uh, like, interest in prurience about sex and, like, uh, almost pornographic qualities, which, if you've picked up a science fiction novel between then and now, the surprisingly high chance of running into just a hardcore sex scene is uh, an interesting historical remnant of specifically the writing of P.J. Farmer, my enemy. (laughs) Not my only enemy, but an enemy. Yeah. And look, I don't necessarily disagree with Suvin that it's good when science fiction involves sex in its like speculation. Um, yeah, yeah. But it is it is so blinding and weird for me that like there's there's a theme throughout this book of like Suvin wants sexual liberation, but what that means for him is non-monogamy. It doesn't mean queerness. Yet and again, seventy nine. I. I'm not saying that as, as exculpatory. I'm just saying I'm yeah, not surprised. Yeah, I think that actually, I think that actually is is really embarrassing for him. <laughs> like, cause the the fucking like the 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 gay the gay liberation movement is like happening. Yeah, um, yeah. Joanna Russ is right there. They're, no, they I know, are like I know. friends. They talk at conventions and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um. So yeah, it's it's just it's weird for me. Um. Yep. It does. This footnote does end with. Still, it is a loss that Wells never really fused his sexual liberation novels and his scientific romances into xenoerotics of the Rosneine, Doremu, or Farmer type. But here, oh too, God, he provided that. at least an empty model. Oh my god, yeah, he likes PJ Or at least he thinks that the Farmer type of xenoerotics is worth writing. He doesn't actually say that he likes Farmer himself. He just says that the Farmer type by Wells would have been interesting. I do think yeah, that's no, an important that's, distinction. That's fair. That's totally fair. Uh, 
but yeah. Anyway, I'll I'll say here's what I'll say. Um, maybe there should have been sex with aliens in the time traveler, but I don't think it should have been with Weena. It should have been with the crab. I'm not responding to this. <laughs> I'm moving on. Oh, <laughs> so a lot of stuff about Wells genuinely worth reading. I think both because I think it's a very interesting and intricate reading of Wells' structural stuff, and also, I mean, basically makes a demonstration of how you can use his approach to science fiction to get these really rich and interesting readings, looking at the sort of cognition, the class politics, the structure, the formalisms of the science fiction, and how estrangement plays through it. He uh, points out a number of devices that Wells uh, typically used, one of which I think is really interesting, is pointing out that Wells begins with a frame narrative set in a very familiar standard place and then has the uh the figure who is going to estrange us and tell us a story like the time traveler uh demonstrate a small version of the novum within that controlled space so it starts off looking like a you know strange invention story right like the time traveler has a miniature of the time machine and sitting on a table and then sends it into the future three minutes and everyone's impressed and claps and thinks it's a cool magic trick. And then he goes, by the way, I have a full-sized one and I went to the year five billion where everything sucks. Like it's this... Sorry, go on. No, 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 you're right. Please continue. So that the, um, and the argument is that this allowed Wells to convince readers to go along with the science fiction because they'd already been willing to countenance the little demonstration model, the little version that doesn't fully estrange them yet, that just fits into their world, even if it's like, wow, so weird. And then it's like, well, this actually opens up these incredible vistas of possibility. Once you have this, you have something else entirely. And I think that that is sort of a an early form of science fiction before you can just jump into, yeah, no, we're totally different universe, totally different things, you're used to this, audience, is a really good point. That he, that Wells was thinking about how to structure his, how basically how to train his audiences to read science fiction. And this, I think, also connects to, um, I don't know that Suvin explicitly draws this connection, but it connects to, um, as far as, like, techniques that Wells uses, he also talks a lot about uh, proportion, um, in the sense of, like, A is to B as B is to C. And that, I think, is, like, a, a structure that you're able to... Th- this is, like, the, you know, moving from the familiar into the unfamiliar that you take someone into, like, okay, well, here's this little machine that can do this, and then if the machine can do this, then uh, the next thing that follows is that, like, uh, this other thing must be possible. Um each section uh, kind of moves on from the next one um, in in uh, a kind of, like, logically necessary proportion. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, I think... Yeah. yeah, I think that his... He has a very glowing review of Wells as sort of a progenitor of the, uh, the modern science fiction story, the contemporary science fiction story, and, you know, makes a good argument for this. Uh... And it's also, I think, interesting that this is where we start to get this sort of strong structuralism and formalism rather than a very general historicism, because this is the point where a self-described, if not quite self-describing as science fiction, but like, you know, 
Vern and Wells are describing their works as science stories, right? Mm-hmm. And so you get this very uh, clear history from around then, you know, that Gernsback will go on to directly reproduce Vern and Wells' stories in his first uh, edition of Astounding Science Fiction. Yeah. Uh, which also means that from this point forward, uh, I mean, basically, Suvin doesn't have to argue for this grand subterranean current. He can just argue that these books that were published were published. And so it becomes a much more uh, straightforward history of different sort of areas and fields of science fiction going forward. But he does stop, um, he explicitly says this in, in the introduction to the second part of this historical section, um, that he's, he's stopping short of Gernsbachian science yes. fiction. Yes, yeah. Because um, after that basically... point, he doesn't need to argue for it. Yes, um... So that being, that's pretty much where he stops with Wells. And then he also goes on to discuss, uh, like, he, he has a, uh, you know, a chapter on um, Russian science fiction, which is like a very, very quick and broad uh, historical sweep. Yep, and then he goes in depth yep. onto um, Karol Chopik. Czech, not Russian, but clearly a part of... Um, yeah, yeah, the Eastern the, European or Slavic science fictional tradition. Yeah, um, which we unfortunately don't have time for. Yeah, yeah, I I might be interested in someday returning to uh, Karl Chopek because he's an interesting author, uh, but... I'd be open, I'd be open to an episode where we actually read some Chopek and then maybe yeah, read yeah. this chapter again and something else about him if we want, because yeah, no, I've be just cool. never read, I've never read any of his work and it became really clear to me when I was talking to you about the Chopek chapter here that like the impression I was getting of his work just from reading Suvin was kind of unfair. Um, yeah. And which is, which is interesting, I think, because we should mention that Chopek is given a heroic depiction here. He is held right. up as this, like, like maybe arguably the great science fiction author of just before Gernsback. Yeah. Well, and, and just before the second world war, also, yes. which is like yes. hugely important. Um, but also, I think that's kind of why I was so skeptical. Like, when when Suvin is that glowing about someone, I'm kind of like, okay, what are you hiding? Oh, <laughs> uh, you've got it. It's really funny, because the first, the first half of this book, you were like, yeah, no, I think I'm a Suvinian. You know, I'm really compelled by this. And, you know, I certainly agree. And then the second half, you're like, ah, Suvin, my enemy. Well, it's not that he's my enemy, it's just that I think I found different things in his theory than he did. Yeah, no, I mean... I... And and so it's useful and interesting to see him actually develop it out, because that shows me that I was getting, you know, new ideas, or I was synthesizing ideas um, when I was reading his theory, and, like, that's cool and good, and yeah. makes me feel like I am thinking and not just <laughs> absorbing. No, that's that's very fair, and also I think it's really... That might be a good note to end on here, or at least to discuss briefly, because I think that part of what this history section shows is that his theory does have a lot more depth and interest than just what he sees in it, and he sees a lot in it. He sees an entire history of a submerged current of literature... But at the same time, you can do so much with cognitive estrangement that just doesn't touch on that at all. It's it's unnecessary to the theory itself outside of Suvin's particular aims for it. And I think that's one of the hallmarks of the strength 
of cognitive estrangement and the novum as a theory of science fiction, as a unifying description, is that they are fertile. They are multiform and flexible because they are this very general formal identification of core ideas, and they've been applied in different ways. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and also, you know, to some extent, I think this is true of, like, everything that we have read and are going to read, that um, it, these ideas wouldn't be interesting if they weren't flexible in some kind of way. Yeah, um, yeah. They're, we're not particularly interested in, or at least we haven't been looking at, really, like, specific biographies of particular science fiction authors that are just about them. That kind of history of science fiction is valuable and interesting, but we've been thinking a lot more about the theoretical side, which necessarily is trying to produce tools for thought rather than uh, singular statements. Yeah. Okay, I feel ready to wrap this up, especially because we need to make sure to plug Detector Die. Oh, thank you! Yeah, yeah, no, I, um, uh, as I'm sure you are uh, aware from the fact that I don't shut up about it, uh, Dear listeners, uh, I wrote a tabletop RPG, and Mark edited it, uh, and it is published on Itch. Uh, it's a, uh, it is in fact possibly the only tabletop RPG to quote Darko Suvin in it um, as a as a chapter header, and it was uh, inspired by very science fiction studies e genre stuff. Uh, about realizing that uh, video game Disco Elysium, which I think is a great piece of science fiction and a very Suvinian piece of science fiction in a lot of ways, um, combined genres, uh, specifically of uh, the mystery, science fiction, the amnesia story, and the political story, uh, or like a political education story, into a cluster based around a certain kind of empiricism, of discovering details about the world and assembling them. And that was the sort of big inspiration for making a tabletop RPG heavily inspired by Disco Elysium. Yeah, um, and uh, do you mind if I just kind of like summarize the actual premise of the game? Oh yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> so the premise of the game is that uh, the players are each playing a um, like part of the fractured psyche of an amnesiac detective um, who has woken up with nothing but these uh, multiple selves and the case, whatever it is, the need to investigate it. Um, and so over the course of the game, uh, the GM or the world um, presents a world and a mystery um, to the players and they work together to try to solve it. Um, hence the tagline, uh, discover who you were, decide who you are, detect or die. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm very happy with it. And, uh, the system is built on, uh, a Powered by the Apocalypse variant called, uh, that was used in Bluebeard's Bride. Uh, not a lot directly survives from that, but it was a huge inspiration in figuring out how to have a single character, uh, that is all of the players. And also, um... I mean, frankly, it also helped convince me that you could have a game that has this one scenario that defines the story it tells, and yet be incredibly flexible in what kinds of stories it can tell. There is a real specificity to, you are an amnesiac detective, but besides that, there's a real flexibility in what kind of mysteries I've... Uh, 
a number of the sort of playtest games included uh, a true crime podcaster waking up in a hotel in the Midwest, a uh, um, someone solving a mystery on a whale ship in the 1800s, a very straightforward uh, Disco Elysium uh, pastiche. Riff? Riff. Riff's fair. I, I like to think it was a riff. Um, and a... Uh, Delta Green sort of Call of Cthulhu style investigation, uh, you know, again, with an amnesiac protagonist. And all of them worked out quite well in terms of system and setting connecting. So I'm really happy with the setting flexibility despite the scenario specificity. Okay, so where can people buy Detector Tie, Ben? Uh, they can buy it on uh, itch.io at silk and stone uh, slash detector die. It's uh, it's silk hyphen and hyphen stone dot itch dot io is Ben's itch dot io page. Thank you. We, there should also be a link in the description. Yes, we will put a link in the description. Um, and uh, you can also definitely find any updates about Detector Die. Um, there's going to be uh, case files released. So yep. you know some of which uh, are the things I just described. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, like basically materials for you to run uh, a game based on one of these playtest games. Mm -hmm. um, so if you want more updates for that, you can follow Ben on Twitter. Um, also Silk and Stone, but no hyphens this time, just all mm -hmm. one word. Um, I've also got that on Blue Sky. Yes. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter, um, Char Asnablunt. Um, and you can follow me on Blue Sky and co-host at Ven Diagram. I'm not really using either of those yet, but if Twitter truly implodes, then... It, it has Certainly to happen give sometime him a try. soon. But he's owned it for like a year, so how soon is He soon? has a lot of money to burn. God. Okay. We gotta <laughs> escape. Uh, do you, you want to do the sign-off? Uh, you can do it. You, you won the sign-off war. It wasn't <laughs> much of a war. Stay cognitively estranged, everybody. Bye. Bye.